So the fact is, we've been mistreated as a country for many years, and it's just not going to happen any longer. When we're behind on every single country, trade wars aren't so bad. We don't want to have a trade war with the United States or with anybody else, but we are not afraid of it. If somebody tries to impose a trade war on us, we will fight. That was U.S. President Donald Trump and Chinese Ambassador to the U.S. Tsui Tiankai speaking of the looming trade war between the United States and China. Hello and welcome to the China Path podcast. I'm James Scullin from the Australia-China Business Council. Over the last few months, talks of a trade war have intensified between the two superpowers, with both exchanging threats of tariff increases. On this episode, we look to understand how we got to the position where a trade war is on the horizon, what the potential impact may be for Australia and the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, and how businesses can prepare themselves in an unpredictable global trade environment. On the episode, I'm joined by Russell Wees, global trade partner at Hunt & Hunt Lawyers. Russell has a strong focus on helping importers and exporters proactively manage customs risks and opportunities, such as free trade agreements. Over the past 10 years, he's advised on various indirect taxes, including customs duty, GST, excise, and fuel tax credits, which has given him the opportunity to work with internal government stakeholders, multinationals, individual customs brokers, and small to medium businesses. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here with Russell Wees, partner and customs and global trade specialist at Hunt & Hunt Lawyers. Thanks a lot for taking the time today, Russell. Oh, happy to be here. So, Russell, today being May the 3rd, 2018, what's the current state of play in the recent tit-for-tat tariff increases between the US and China? Yeah, I'm glad you said the date there because it can change <laughs> on a day-to-day basis and I worry that by the time this is heard by people, there'll be 10 Trump tweets each going <laughs> yeah. in a different direction. But, you know, at the moment, it's actually in a slightly more positive position in that the parties are actually meeting, potentially as we speak, to negotiate a path forward. Over the past few months, we've, we've seen lots of different actions, lots of threats and the like, but what's it, what it's culminated in the moment mm. is trade negotiators from both sides getting together and working out where there are some concessions that can be made. And I don't think we'll get any major breakthrough agreement that this issue is all resolved within a few weeks, but what we'll get is maybe a couple of concessions uh, from the Chinese side, potentially on the import of vehicles, um, but then a framework for what, what has to happen over the next six months or what happens um, in the short term. And I think that's a really good point to be at, mm. um, as opposed to if it was just the parties weren't prepared to talk and some of the threats that have been made started to materialise. And if, if you think about that, if we think about how this all started, we have to really go back more than just the Trump presidency. For at least the past 10 years, the US has been very aggressive on seeking to impose high dumping duties on uh, products made of steel and aluminium uh, coming out of China okay. into the US. So dumping duties you can impose if you say they're essentially selling those goods into our country at a cheaper price than what they've been selling on their domestic market. Yeah. And the US have said, Chinese government, you've, uh, you've flooded the market of steel and aluminium and you've depressed the price and we're going we're gonna to stop those goods essentially coming in. And they've imposed tariffs of over 100% on those goods. Those markets are dead okay. for Chinese products. Right. So amongst that background, when Trump gets in, um, he orders a few things. There's, a, there's an investigation based on security concerns into the steel and aluminium markets in the US and based on the, 
security threat posed by cheap steel and aluminium is imposed sort of like a global duty on, on steel, 25% on steel, 10% on aluminium. Australia got an exclusion from that and so did a few other countries. Yeah. Uh, but that one's, that's in place. Following that, intellectual property theft by China. And we get onto that in a moment, but essentially they find that anywhere between, say, 200 and $500 billion worth of intellectual property theft has occurred by China. And in response to that, they propose about $50 billion, uh, or tariffs of 25% that would create, would apply to about $50 billion worth of Chinese imports into the US. Yep. At the same time, we have China retaliating first to the steel and aluminium tariffs. Yep. And that's, that's about $3 billion on products such as... Um, uh, pork products, uh, fruit, steel pipes. Is that particularly related to China, so the steel and aluminium tariffs? It is. Um, whilst it applies globally, the reason they feel they've had to impose it is that the cheap um, steel and aluminium coming out of China is getting to the US via third countries. So okay. Sort of um, circumventing those dumping duties that are being imposed. Yep. Um, look... It's, it doesn't stack up when you look at it. Most of the steel and aluminium coming into the US is coming from Canada and Mexico, um, countries that aren't being alleged to have done. Canada especially a very similar economy to the US. You can't re- the reason the US economy can't compete against that is more to their own internal issues. Okay. Um, I've always been very sceptical of dumping duties and claims that um, somehow, uh, say, Australia or US economies need protection from cheaper Chinese steel, that's a gift, if you ask me. It just helps our economies make goods cheaper. Uh, I think it's just a protectionist-type measure. Um, But it's always been something that's been allowed within sort of the ambit of the the WTO. Whereas when you say it's because of a security concern, that this is an issue of national security, Mm. you've got to try to justify that. And it seems hard to justify when... You're getting most of your steel from your close allies. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's understandable that China looks at that, and they have complained to the WTO, okay. and they also say we're going to retaliate, and we're going to put some uh, extra tariffs on those products: pork, wine, fruit. Um, and they've already those Chinese ones have begun. Those tariffs are in place. Okay. Now we had, as I said, the um, the the other tariffs that the US imposed because of the um, alleged IP theft. Yeah. And in response to that, China has said, well, if you're going to do that to us, we're going to hit you with $50 billion worth of tariffs on products into the US. And some of the big ones they've really targeted there, um, soybean, which is about $10 billion worth of um, exports. That's a, probably the US's biggest export to China is, is those soybeans. Uh, wide-bodied aircraft, so looking at uh, Boeing there. Yeah. Um, and a, a few other type products that will really hit home and be felt uh, within the US and, and really be felt by... Farmers in the Midwest who presumably are Republican voters, there's been a lot of Republican pushback on this. They, they see this as something that's really going to cost them votes, not economically sound. Yeah. Um, but it's just one of those things where, to Trump, it looks like the US is losing. Because right. there's a trade deficit there. It's a massive trade deficit. Yep. And that has to equate with not good deals not having been made or that this is something negative yep. for the US economy. Whereas... There's a lot of mixed views about whether trade deficits are even a bad thing. Well, is that an appropriate way to look at it? The fact that Trump sees America as losing because yeah. of the deficit is that is that a is that a unique opinion yeah. in, in well, international trade? Yeah, because free trade agreements, international trade in general, it's a compromise. It's the idea is we're going to give you what we're best at. 
you give us what mm. you're best at, it works out better for everyone. Yep. Everyone's using their resources more efficiently. Um, and trade agreements, if, if someone comes out of a free trade agreement feeling like I was the winner out of that, then mm. it's not a good agreement. Right. You know? It's almost, um, you know, when we negotiate settlements, it's almost like everyone has to, both sides should feel like, a, you know, almost a little, not disappointed, but they, neither side should be really excited. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That sort of shows it's been a fair outcome. Whereas I think Trump feels that you have to win, win the agreement for it to be a successful one. Okay. Um, and it's more just this idea that, I mean, one of his demands is that there has to be a hundred billion less uh, trade deficit. Mm. Uh, I mean, how do you how do you just manufacture that? The reason there's a trade deficit is not because some one of the governments has said we're going to be buying these goods or not. I mean, largely it's it's driven by what U.S. purchasers yeah. want to buy. Yeah. And if they can get manufactured goods, clothing, uh, furniture, electronics out of China cheaper than they can in the U.S. Mm because of economic sort of structures within those countries, um, how, how can you blame the other country sure. for that? Uh, Australia commonly runs trade deficits. Mm. Um, yeah. And we all enjoy the benefits of that uh, in the sense of the, the, the cost of goods we buy and also just having a big range of goods. Yeah. Uh, we have a trade deficit with the US. Um, so well, it's kind of similar to the Australian dollar. Like a, a low mm. Australian dollar may mean positive things for some people and for other people it may mean, you know, something else completely. That's right. And the only reason that should be a problem for people if, is if you feel the government's actually manipulating that to produce an outcome designed to hurt another economy yeah. or is behaving in an unfair manner. Okay. Um, and, of course, Trump has made claims about currency manipulation, but there's never been anything to sort of back that up or any right. sort of response taken. Um, now, what about IP infringement? Does, does the US government have a case that China has not been playing by the conventions of international trade? And if so, isn't the WTO the best institution to, to handle yeah. these? Yeah. No, look, it's, it's a really good question. And it's a, it's a difficult issue to answer. Let me show you how difficult it is. That the, when in the government, the US government's official documents, they value the level of IP infringement at between 225 billion and 600 billion a year. Mm. Now, when you can't narrow it down from 225 <laughs> to 600 billion, you don't even know what's being stolen. You don't. You're not sure on what constitutes theft or not, and you've no way of valuing it. So, yeah. it's. You've got to put it in that context that they don't really have a firm hold over what they're talking about. Um, there's a few different ways that IP theft is alleged to have occurred within China. Um, there's what we would sort of, I guess, understand as IP theft, which is when you make counterfeit goods. Yeah. Now, appreciating this isn't Chinese state-owned enterprises making mm. this. It's more the claim is you're allowing private companies to do this in your country and you're not enforcing the laws. Okay. Uh, rigorously enough. And that claim's been made for 10 years against China. Yeah. Um, uh, there's the other uh, claim that you're allowing counterfeit goods into the country and to be sold, uh, similar to the first sort of argument. What's what's the bigger issue um, and what perhaps has a makes up a bigger chunk of that 225 to 600 billion is this idea that Chinese organisations are appropriating IP from US organisations by reason of government laws around how you're allowed to do trade in China. Okay. And your listeners will appreciate that China is not the same as Australia where anyone can basically set up a company or do business in Australia with very little hassle and go into almost any area, you know, leaving aside mm. very sensitive um, regulated industries. Yeah. In China, um, there are more limits on the level of foreign ownership yeah. of companies. There's more limits on what 
um, level of ownership is foreign ownership is permitted to go into certain sectors. Yeah. So if you force a, a U.S. Gov country uh, company to team up with a Chinese. 50% Chinese or greater percentage than that yep. uh, to be in the manufacture of something that involves IP, then that is a way of forcing that IP into Chinese um, hands. Yep. And it's even been said more directly. You know, if you basically pressure that, if you want to be making, um, you know, cars in China, you have to, you know, be passing over this IT, allowing these people to have access to your your IP. Um, you know, actual proof of that's harder to come across, but that's where they see the problem. And other people will say, well, you know, this really is just actually part of, you know, issues of territoriality, sovereignty. Mm. China's allowed to make up the rules mm. about the terms under which um, companies can do business in its country. Yeah. Um, now... And the U.S. companies, they can make that decision. Do we want to take advantage of uh, the lower cost of production in China and move our production there, but at the same time knowing there's IP right. issues, or do we want to keep it in the U.S. at a higher well, cost of you production? You can't cherry pick. Well, that's right. And essentially they're saying, you know, your, your, um, your rules around uh, employment conditions and like and the less regulation in general creates a lower cost of manufacturing goods in China. So we like that aspect. We like how you exercise your sovereign rights in that respect. Um, but we also want you to adopt US-style US rules around IP yep. and corporate, um, how, how corporations can operate in your country. I feel it is a... Um, there's, there's a genuine basis for the claim, um, but is it actually something that constitutes illegal activity? Would it be prohibited under WTO rules? Um, and to your point... Is the WTO not the appropriate forum for this? Mm. There is an agreement on IP and how it should be um, protected. If the US doesn't feel that China's doing its bit, it has an international regime through which it can um, yep. seek to enforce that. Right. And if they prove breaches, they're allowed to take retaliatory measures. Mm. Um, the WTO isn't doesn't say, we're going to put in laws and if people ignore it, you're helpless. Mm. Basically, it's a system whereby they say, the only way we can really enforce laws against another country is to say, well, if they do that, you can do this. Okay. And so if they breach those laws, you can do an appropriate retaliation. Would would 25% tariffs on 50 billion of uh, imports from China be an appropriate response? I don't know. It hasn't been tried. They right. haven't even proven the okay. breaches. You yeah. know? So it's an interesting one. So um, are we at the stage where we can say this trade war has begun or are we just witnessing threats... Um, a negotiation tactic, so to speak. Yeah. Um, can we call this a trade war now? Yeah. Um, where I'd be at the moment is that we we have the potential for a trade war and we have threats that if if you don't come to the table and negotiate, we, we're going to engage in a trade war. So mm. I see a trade war as um, attempts by uh, one country to increase tariffs or other barriers of trade with the purpose of hurting the economy of another country. Mm. And that is what we are seeing in the sense of the threat of imposing, um, I think it's now up to uh, $100 billion worth of imports, 25% tariffs on $100 billion worth of Chinese imports. Um, that is a threat to greatly impact a significant part of the Chinese economy. And China is retaliating, making similar threats. Well, mm. Maybe slightly lower amounts, but um, in terms of the percentage of imports covered, probably covering a greater percentage of imports. So we're at that stage where there's threats, but it, it's not a full-blown uh, trade war. It, if it did happen, 
I mean, it's a trade war between the, the world's two biggest economies. Yeah. And in a sense, that's, that's unique. Yeah. Um, hopefully, it wouldn't spread beyond those economies. That's, that's, I think, a big risk for someone like Australia. And who knows which side would be, which side would we take? We have closer economic relationships with China and definitely from a, a trade, a trading goods perspective. Yeah. Um, they're, they're our most important trading partner. Um, but then there's the strategic and uh, defence ties with the US, which go back, you know, longer than that other relationship. I think it would be an extremely uh, tough position to be in. And I've, I've seen studies that say the way to combat a, a trade war, if you're the party that is not in it and you don't want it to escalate, is to actually even go the opposite, say we're going to lower our tariffs, we're going we're gonna to reject your approach mm. and we're we're not going to play that game because it just escalates and escalates. Oh, right. Okay. And um, one of the uh, one of the responses sort of proposed in in a in a study on this is, if you're not directly involved, um, the way to respond to it is to is to go the opposite. And oh, that right. Okay. Whether that would play out that way or be successful, um, you know, we're, we're dealing in unknown sort of territory yeah. here. And you know, there've been trade wars in the past, but. You know, substantively, there hasn't been a major trade war since the Great Depression. And the trade war then didn't cause the Great Depression, but the um, almost unanimous view is that it, it prolonged the impact of it and, and there was no winners out of it. And mm. in that case, you're really looking at the US um, versus Canada and the EU. Um, well, it wasn't the EU then, but European countries. Um, and in that case, it, it, it was seen as disastrous and there, there hasn't really been something similar since then. But you know, the economies back then, you were looking at someone manufactured a good from all components made in their country yeah. and then exported that good. Now, if you're, if you're exporting an iPhone from China, well, it's going to have completely different thousands system. of parts from all over mm. the world. It's going to be... You put a tax on Chinese goods into the US, I can promise you mm. that you are hurting the US exporters of components to China that end up in that good. Yeah. So it's hard to think how you can get into a trade war without... Um, hurting some of your own econ some of your own exporters indirectly. So I take it you wouldn't agree with the uh, U.S. president's prophetic tweet that uh, trade wars are good and easy to win. Yeah, I um, it wouldn't be the the only tweet of his I wouldn't agree with, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't think there's any any history to back that up. I I know there there was a trade war between France and Italy in the 19th century, and France was seen to have won that because it was a much bigger economy at the time and was able to just basically say, we're not backing down, okay. and eventually Italy had to. Okay. But look at this, the dynamic here. Yeah. You have two huge economies, yeah. um, but you have one where you've got a, a president with a very low approval rating, you've got midterms coming up, you've got Republicans who are very opposed to this, who are representing... Uh, agricultural exporter, so you're not even having consistency within the political party mm. there about this approach, and you also have an election coming up, versus the Chinese government. Um, very stable. Yeah. Um, President Xi's got no, you know, real time limit, um, and yeah. there's, a, there's a consistent strategy there. And also, you know, I think there's probably more international goodwill with China on this, because China is, has been unilaterally trying to open up trade. Yeah. Um, they last year they just cut tariffs on a range of imported goods without um, needing to negotiate that or anything. It was just seen as something beneficial for their economy. Yeah. They're driving negotiation around RCEP, the, the FTA that would involve the, the ASEAN countries, India, Japan, Australia, Korea and uh, New Zealand. Mm. Um, 
compare that to the US with their approach on the Trans-Pacific Partnership and this, I, you know, I, I think yep. that it's not a war that really makes sense for the US to, to engage in other than to satisfy sort of Trump goal of being seen as doing something to make America great again. And, and fulfilling that, that election pledge. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. It, why is America not great? Because someone else is doing better now. Someone right. else is winning, so right. we have to stop them winning um, without considering if there's some way we can all mutually sort of benefit here. So thinking about how this affects Australia, um, if, if it becomes more expensive for US farmers to export to China, surely this must be a win for Australian, Australian agriculture where uh, goods yeah. can get exported cheaper to China and the market can increase? Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. And my, my initial feeling was you, you're spot on there. But I, when you dig down into the detail, it's interesting what agricultural goods actually get exported from the US to China. The number one uh, good exported is, is soybeans, which is at about $12.5 uh, mm. After that, it really drops down. Cotton's the next one at $1 billion. Hides and skin, about $1 billion. Um, it really falls off, and if you look at who are those, who's going to pick up the slack in the soybeans market? Well, it's Brazil, Argentina, Canada. Australia is not what we export. Yeah. Um, those other main exports from uh, the US to China, they're not necessarily products we've, we're, we're big at exporting. We're, we're exporting beef, we're exporting dairy, um, wine. I, I, I don't think that we're competing against the US for most wines we may be a little bit but for those other products not so much to the extent it's fruit and vegetables well we're in an opposite hemisphere mm. so we're probably competing at different times of the year mm, okay. there will be other impacts um, those some of those goods from China uh, from the US that can't find a home as easily in China may um, their prices may get lowered and they may find um, homes in other markets including Australia which may have a sort of flow on effect what I think the bigger impact is, if the US does something which limits demand for Chinese-made goods in the US, that's okay. where we start to feel it. Because our, our top two exports, uh, iron ore and coal, that's 30% of what this country exports. Right. Um, and a big chunk of that, most of that iron ore is going to China to make stuff. Okay. Um, if there's not as much demand to make Chinese goods and yep. the US is going to be their biggest customer, mm. that then flows down. And if our, you know, if there's a depression in the price of those sort of commodities, that's felt throughout our whole economy. Mm. So that that's where I see the biggest risk. Okay. Um, now, should the trade war escalate between the USA and China, um, how would this affect Australia's relationship with China, thinking of the China-Australia free trade agreement? Does, does CHAFTA, in a way, insulate... Australia against the effects of the trade war? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And the answer is yes, it does. Mm. Um, from the perspective that China could not raise tariffs against Australia without breaching that agreement. Now, will that mean something to them? Mm. Uh, you, at the moment, I'd say it would. I think both countries entered into the agreement in good faith and, yep. it, and there's a good relationship uh, between those countries. And it's a bit like what I was saying with the WTO. Under the, under the chapter, if one country raises or breaches its obligations under the agreement um, and the other, they go through arbitration mm. and it's proven that they did but they don't fix that, then the other side can sort of retaliate or can cancel the agreement. So there's no strong way to enforce it other than to say, well, if you're not going to abide by the agreement, neither will we. And is that, um, is that, is that common in FTAs where, where a partner may breach the agreement? No, not in a way that's proven. Like, there may be subtle breaches that, um, you know, maybe timeframes aren't met or they say they're going to, um, say, in the services space, we'll do our best to 
um, recognise similar qualifications in Australia. Those things, those intangible things that are always hard to measure mm. may happen, but around something as, as, as objective as tariff rates, you don't, you don't see it. Okay. Um, now, here's a, an interesting example, though, is that under our FTA of the US, it says if they're going to raise tariffs on Australian products, even through a safeguard-type measure regarding security, there's this whole process they need to go through. Okay. They didn't do that when they decided to increase tariffs to 25% on mm. steel or aluminium. Right. Eventually, we got an exclusion from that. But the report that went to Trump said, these are the countries we have FTAs with, um, there's no need to impose any extra duties on these, and if you do, this is the process you need to go through. But Trump just came out and said oh, we're going right. to impose duties on everyone. Right. So yeah. if there's history of it, it's happening now with the, the way the US is behaving. Oh, right. At the heart, they're just agreements between two countries, and if one country chooses not to follow it, it's, it's hard to enforce yeah. you know, the legal obligations of a, of a sovereign country. Yeah. Um, but ultimately... What, what we do get out of the FTA, and I, I think this is, a, this is an important point I've been making um, about all of our sort of Northern Asian FTAs in particular, sometimes all they do is repeat what's already in place. So they repeat that, um, you know, Australian uh, companies will have the same rights as a, a Japanese com company to, to trade in Japan. And we may say, well, that's, that's nothing better than what you currently get. Mm. But if the landscape changes and there's protectionist measures taken, they apply to the rest of the world, but the FTA should mean that we get what used to be the status quo. Yeah, okay. And that's the same with China. You know, to the extent that you may say, oh, half of what we got is just the same as what already exists in the Shanghai Free Trade Zone. Okay. If that free trade zone disappears in a you know, sort of trade war environment, we have our different rights under the FTA, which give us those same protections. So mm. I think it quarantines us to an extent. It's not a... It, it, it doesn't give us some, you know, magic bullet that we can use if um, if they do decide to raise rates. But I think it just um, it does create that context that they, trade between Australia and China should largely be open and free and moving more towards trade liberalisation than imposing additional protectionist measures. So in, in, in future months, if it looks like the trade war is escalating, is there anything or any way businesses can best prepare themselves for a looming trade war? Yeah, it's, it is a, a good question because we may not get a lot of notice. Mm. Um, remembering with the aluminium and steel tariffs, it was I think it was like eight days' notice before they were starting to be imposed. And most goods are transported by sea, so those goods are already on the water uh, to those foreign markets when you learn about the tariff increase. So what I think is good to do, if you're an Australian exporter um, or if you're an importer, have a look at your agreements, have a look at the... Where is the um, obligation to pay duty? Who, who has the obligation to pay duty? Mm. Um, is it if it's you as an importer, should you be thinking about negotiating a right to be able to cancel the contract if if there's a material change in duty rates before the goods arrive in Australia? If you're an exporter, making sure that you don't have that obligation and that um, there's no wiggle room there for your your uh, customer uh, to get out of it. If you are if you have the choice on buying goods from China um, or the US, countries where we think there may be some volatility there, mm. or you've got an equally good deal from somewhere else, mm. then maybe think about hedging your bets a little bit, um, not having all your trade tied up with the US, for example, um, if you think the trade with them may become rockier. Mm. Um, so I think it's a, it's a good op opportunity to sort of think about where are those risk factors? We're not going to get much notice about them. How can we how can we manage that risk? And generally, that's then thinking about 
well, if there was an unexpected tariff rise, could I cancel this contract or would I be the one stuck with that uh, duty obligation? And if that's the case, thinking about um, what changes you need to make. And I guess another point um, is I'd be reluctant to enter into really long-term supply or mm. purchase type agreements. If you're talking, you know, beyond sort of 12, 24 months, I couldn't predict what it's going to look like in 24 months' time. Mm. So if you're locking yourself into pricing or some sort of circumstances for a longer period than that, you just got to do so knowing that you're taking a risk. Okay, great. Well, thanks a lot for your time today, Russell. It's definitely a complex issue and we'll see how things pan out in the next few months. Great. Thanks for having me. My thanks to Russell for making sense of the current trade war fever. And if you'd like any information from him on international trade, please do visit this episode's show notes at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. My thanks also to the Australian Trade and Investment Commission for their support of this podcast. And as always, if you have a colleague, client or friend that may benefit from this episode, please let them know about the podcast. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, 再见. Zai